Hey everybody, it's John. Welcome or welcome back to the One Church Podcast. Hey, thank you for taking a second to subscribe to our channel. And when you rate and review this podcast, it really means a lot to me as it helps us engage with even more people. But most importantly, I hope that the word today will engage, equip, empower, and encourage you to reach the world. Enjoy. The disciples did exactly what you or I would have done had we been in their shoes and in that scenario. They hid themselves in a room behind locked doors as worries, as doubts, as fears began to roll through their minds. I don't know, but I just imagine that they began to plan, what do we do next? Well, I mean, what do we do next? We close the windows, we lock the doors, we begin to ponder and to plan. They killed him, surely they'll be coming for us. For three and a half years, they plotted to take his life. They made sneaky plans behind closed doors, trying to figure out the exact way in which they would capture him. Surely, no matter how long we live, because we have associated ourselves for the last three and a half years with him, they will be plotting to take our life lives as well. Now, I don't know that the disciples said this exactly. It's not written in the scripture, but if I were to take myself and put me in the story, if you were to take yourself and put you in the story, I imagine that one central question surrounding their uh, several hours together locked in that upper room would have centered around something to the tune of why would God allow such a bad thing happened to such a good person? Why would God allow such a bad thing to happen to such a good person? You see, the existence of God isn't in question so much in their minds. It's not really in question in most of the Israelites' minds, the existence of God. But, but Jesus... All he ever really did was help people. He, he fed those who were hungry. He healed those who were hurting. He told a lame man, get up and walk. He, he told uh, women who were outcasts that they could be forgiven and loved and known. He spat on a blind man's eyes and he made him see everywhere we went. Jesus was doing good things for people that no one else could help. And surely, if there was anyone on this planet who was the definition of good, truly Jesus was the essence of good. So forget the claim for just a moment that he was God. He kept claiming that he was God. We'll put that out of our minds just for a moment because frankly, we're all wondering about about that at this moment because he's dead. We're all wondering about that right now because he's not here anymore. But he had said that he would die over and over and over again. So that was no surprise. But, But Jesus had claimed that he would come back to life. And, and we thought that maybe his death was kind of a, a, a picture sort of a thing. We thought it was just a, an illustration, but, but he died, and that really shouldn't surprise us. But he said over and over and over again, I'm coming back to life. But could I ask you a question? If you were there, and if you truly believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, from the grave, after three days and three nights. If you truly believed that, wouldn't you be waiting by the door of the tomb with hopeful anticipation like a kid waits for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve? If you truly believed that he was real, that he was who he says he was, and that he could do what he said he would do, wouldn't you be waiting with anticipation and great expectation that he would do exactly as he claimed? 
Even Jesus' disciples had a hard time reconciling faith with what appeared to be facts. And just like questions without obvious answers drove the disciples away from Jesus or away from faith, there may be some of you in the room today who have some deep and some legitimate questions that are causing you to almost lose the faith. Maybe you've got someone in your family, or maybe you're here this morning or watching online and you'd say, I'm here because it's Easter and I'm here maybe out of obligation to my family. But listen, the reason why I don't believe in Jesus, the reason why I don't have faith is because I've got a big question that I just can't justify and it's driven me away. Or I used to believe and now I don't because here's I've got a problem. And if we were to take a poll of every Facebook post that's ever been written about why someone doesn't believe in God. If we were to write down every conversation we've ever had with someone about why they no longer believe in God, if we were to be honest and throw our thoughts up on the screen behind me and say, here's the reason why I'm struggling and why my faith is hanging on by a thread is because there's one resonating theme surrounding most of my struggle, and that is this, why? Would God allow bad things to happen to good people? You know, the interesting thing about a question like this is that when we try to reconcile the existence of a good God with bad things in the world, um, one of the pastors that I enjoy, Pastor Andy Stanley, points out that we're fixated on the bad out there, but we fail to think about the bad in here. Uh, let, let me prove that to you real quick. Hey, just we're, no perfect people allowed, so we can be honest here for a second. How many of you raise your hand? You've ever done something bad? Anybody ever done something bad? Everybody's hand ought to be raised. Somebody wake wake somebody up next to you. I've done something bad. Um, hey, let let me ask you. Let me go a little bit deeper. And and again, we're no perfect people allowed, so there's no judgment. But just keep your eyes forward. Don't look at the person next to you. Um, how many of you have ever wanted to do something? And hold on just a second. You've ever wanted to do something really bad, like really really bad, but you knew that you'd get caught. And so the main reason, or one of the reasons, why you didn't do the bad that you wanted to do is because you knew that you'd get caught and there'd be consequences. But if you thought for a moment that you could do that really bad thing and no one would ever know and no one would ever find out and there'd be no consequences, you probably would have done it. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, me, me too. You're, you're in, I won't say good company, but you're in company. We, I, I, I totally get it. If you grew up with siblings, I promise you, there were some evil things passed through your mind one time or another that you thought if no one would find out that I killed him and buried in the backyard, I would do it right now. And when we think about justifying the existence of a good God with bad things, we think about the bad out there, but we fail to consider the bad bits in here. And I've never approached this question from this perspective before. I've certainly never come at it from this particular frame of mind. But, but could I present a different line of thinking to you real quick? Um, think about this. Um, why would a good God allow me to happen? N knowing how, how bad that I am. I mean, if a good God and bad things cannot coexist, um, if God was good, he would have done something about, about me by now. I mean, uh, and that's where we'd go, oh, but Pastor John, I'm not talking about my bad things. I'm talking about the big bad things that are out there. I'm not talking about the bad things that I want to do. But listen, now we've entered into what's called an unfalsifiable premise. 
an unfalsifiable premise, meaning we've entered into an argument where it's going to be impossible to chase it down to a logical beginning or run it down to a logical end um, because you, you can't falsify it because it's an argument completely fueled now by emotion. In other words, a good God and bad things cannot coexist. And the reason why I don't believe in God is because there's bad things in the world, failing to consider that if that were true, that God would not allow me to exist knowing that I'm evil and that I would want to do some pretty bad things and that I'll probably have hurt people in the process of my years on this planet. We go, okay, why? I hear the logic, but that question's never going to go away. Why? Because it's filled with emotion. It's fueled by emotion. I mean, a loved one getting cancer, emotional. I mean, think about a premature death of a dear soul because of an evil person who did an evil thing. Why would a good God allow that evil person to do that evil thing to such a good and innocent one? Think about diseases and destruction and natural disasters. All of our responses to these things are fueled by emotion. But if the apostle John were standing here today, he might say to us, listen, I might be able to shed some light on that. I might be able to direct your thinking toward a way in which you can reconcile and justify the two. Because I saw Jesus. I saw him interact and coexist with evil men. But here's what he did. He loved them. And he loved me first. And then he went to work eradicating the evil that was inside me. You see, good God and bad things can coexist, but they exist together in a way that is so much better and so much more amazing than what you might think. And so when John writes the letter to us that we have called the book of John, he does it for a reason. In fact, he ends his letter. It's not a daily diary. It's a, in retrospect, autobiography detailing the things that he saw. He says, I'm writing this to you for a reason. I've got an agenda, and I'm going to be clear. This is not a bait and switch. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he organizes his entire letter around what he calls signs. Say signs. Sometimes we refer to them as miracles, but John understood that Jesus never one time did a random act of kindness. We live in a culture, a church culture that talks about random acts of kindness all the time. Jesus never did that once. There was never a random act of kindness in his ministry. Jesus always did everything intentionally and on purpose to give glory to God or to point to what was going to happen. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he's constantly going back and forth between Jerusalem and between Galilee. And for the most part, he's been embraced in Galilee. There's a lot of family. There's a lot of friends there. But Jerusalem, that'd be the home of the Roman occupation at the time. It's also the home of the temple. And Jesus has got this bad habit of when he goes to the temple, he likes to teach. And when he teaches, he teaches different things than the religious leaders called the Pharisees. And that makes them really mad. And so the Pharisees and all the church people do what any good church people would do. They pick up rocks and try to kill him. Right? Have you ever noticed how church people attack the other church people the most, more than even the world does? Blows my mind. But the, the disciples are worried about this. So Jesus leaves in chapter 10. They came to him and, and they said, hey, um, 
how long are you going to keep us in suspense? And they're about to set up a trick question. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're Christ, tell us plainly. If you're the Messiah, if you're the king, if you're the promised one, the prophesied about one, tell us plainly. But Jesus answered, and I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, Jesus said, I'm not just going to tell you. I've already showed you that I am who I said I am. In other words, Jesus was demonstrating that in the life of a true Christ follower, it's not just going to be words you speak. It's going to be actions that you demonstrate. But Jesus said, listen, there are some who are willingly blind. They refused to arrive at the conclusion Jesus wanted them to arrive at that he was God, some for love of money, some for love of tradition, some for love of power. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, that removes all responsibility and authority from men. If Jesus is who he says he is, that removes um, all authority from people who are trying to get money in order to get people to God from the Pharisees and the high priests who are the the middleman between people and God. And so the powerful, the traditionalist, the authoritative men pick up rocks to kill him and Jesus journeys not much farther away. And he's about to manufacture a sign that will force the hand of everyone who sees it and hears about it. He's about to manufacture a sign that will cause people either to have to believe in him or to want to kill him. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 11. If you want to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11, when you're ready to jump into the scripture, say jump. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Can you imagine that that's how you were described? This is not just a regular person, Jesus. This is the one that you love. Watch verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said some strange words. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says, this illness does not lead to death, but the fact of the matter is this. Lazarus had died while the messenger was on his way to give the message to Jesus. So either Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about or he's operating on a way different level than you and I are. And so Jesus says, hey, this illness doesn't lead to death. It leads to the glory of God. And I think it's important to notice that Jesus believed that bad things could happen to good people. Bad things could happen to friends of God. Bad things and good God can coexist in the world. It doesn't disprove the existence of God. Rather, it points toward the glory of God. Let's break that apart real quick. A few weeks ago, we discussed this principle that sickness is not a punishment for sin. Rather, it points toward the presence of sin. When Adam and Eve in the perfect garden of Eden made the choice to disobey God, sin entered the world and death entered the world because of sin. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden for a reason. He said, you cannot eat now of the tree of life. He said, I do not want you to eat from that tree. This was not an evil punishment that God did when he booted them out of the garden. Rather, it was a rather gracious and merciful act because God did not want mankind, which he created in his image and which he so loved, to live forever in the bondage and in the grave clothes of sin. He said, I'm going to allow death to enter so that ultimately God can get the glory. 
You see, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says that God puts eternity in our hearts. Meaning that mankind, in his right mind, uh, has a desire to live. So if aging and if death were a part of our life cycle the way God intended it, don't you think that we would not just expect them, but that we would want them? If that was how God intended it to be, don't you think that we would want death? I used to get so frustrated. My dad would say, hey, do you want to go with me to such and such a church? And I'm like, when was the last time we were there? And he would say, we were there when you were six years old. And I would say, no, I do not want to go there. Here's the reason why. Because I got sick and tired of the old church ladies pinching my cheeks and going, oh my goodness, you've grown so much. And I'm like, lies. I've always been this short. You do not know. You look so much older. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a compliment because they were allowed to say it to me, but I would get in trouble when I said that back to them. And you look so much older than the last time I saw you. Why is it that aging takes us by surprise? Like, wow, I'm amazed. Why is it that when a loved one, an elderly loved one at that, passes away, why it rocks our world? Why is it that death takes us by surprise? Because we were never intended to die. We were never created to understand the concept of death. You know, your cellular construct in your body is created such that every cell in your body, by the time that you die, will have been replaced. In other words, you a whole new person because you were never intended to die. Did you know that in your lifetime, you will use less than 1% of the capacity of your brain? And some of the wives in the room said, amen, I know that that's true. Why is it that God would give us the capacity and the ability to have this machine in our head that's faster than any man-made computer and yet we'll only use less than 1%? Could it be that God designed your brain to absorb information for eternity and not to only live for about 70 years? You were never created to die. Listen, thank God for death though. Thank God for death because when God allowed death to enter as a consequence of sin, it was so that through an earthly death, we might enter into a land where there is no more dying. Through an earthly death, we might enter into a place where there is no more tears, where there is no more fears. Because of death, I can step into the eternal presence of God. Somebody give the Lord some praise that I don't have to live like this forever. I don't have to live like this for forever. Jesus says in verse number five, um, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. Why would John throw that detail in there? Because it doesn't look like it right now. Verse number six, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, uh, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Again, this makes no sense. Then after he said to his disciples, watch this, I've got a couple words I want you to read with me. After he said to his disciples, let Go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are... In other words, they said, do we got to go with you? Here's the thing. I know that we're sons of David and you know, you're a son of David, but not all the other Jews have the accuracy of David when he pelted Goliath in the head with that stone. And they were trying to stone you. And if we stand by you, they go rock our world as well. So Jesus said, let us go. And they're like, wait, are you going? Because we're going to stay here. And watch what Jesus does. He he answers them and he says, "Um, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because light is not in him. And the disciples said, thank you, Jesus, for that revelation. We said, do we have to go with you? And you just told us basically carry a flashlight. I don't know what that means. (laughs) What he's saying is this. 
I'm the light of the world, and while I'm here, you need to follow me. Because while you exist in the same presence as me, you're going to see things like you never saw them before. He's saying to them, if you don't, you're going to miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. And John would write this so that we could understand that Jesus is still the light of the world. And if you don't walk with Jesus and in the light of the gospel, you will stumble. You will fall over every obstacle that the world throws your way. Every single thing that you encounter in the dark will trip you up and knock you down. And you will fall and stay rolled. I've fallen and I cannot get up without the light of Jesus in your life. And after these things, in verse 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples start to give Jesus medical advice. And they say, if he's really asleep, we shouldn't wake him up. Sleep's good for sick, sick people. And Jesus goes, let me tell you plainly. And my favorite three words in the whole passage, Lazarus has died. He was like, I'm tired of trying to communicate this to you. He's dead. And watch what happens next. Jesus says in verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. In other words, no choice in the matter. My way, no highway option. We're all going to Bethany. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, and can you hear the sarcasm and exasperation in his voice when he goes, let us also go so that we may die with him. Who? Jesus or Lazarus? And Thomas would go, yep. <laughs> so Jesus heads towards Bethany. Martha comes running to Jesus. Mary stays at the house. And Martha and Mary both ask the same question when they encounter Jesus. You can read it in verse 21. Martha said, Lord, what's the next word? Interesting. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. God, if you were here, this would not have happened. Translated into our modern age of questioning, uh, your accusation is not new. And your question is not new. In fact, they've been asking the same thing of God for 2,000 some odd years. The God of the Bible, I know what he's capable of. He healed people. He resurrected people. He fed people. And so if God, if the God of the Bible really existed, he would have done exactly what I wanted him to do, exactly on time, the way I wanted him to do it. And Martha points her finger in the face of the Son of God and goes, Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. This is God's fault. If God even really exists. I mean, there's so much death in the world. How in the world could a God who values life allow so much death? Watch what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, I am. Say, I am. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says, believe in me and you'll never die. He's like, well, you'll die, but you won't be dead for very long. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says, you can be like Lazarus. In other words, because of Jesus, death is not the period at the end of a sentence. Death is a door. It's a transition. It's not the end. It's only the beginning. John would detail how Mary asked the same question. Jesus would say, take me to the tomb. And there he would find Mary and Martha and dozens of Lazarus's friends from the city of Bethany weeping outside the tomb. And I'm so glad that when the English translators jotted down the verse numbers by these phrases, that they gave these next two words their own verse. Because while it is the shortest verse in all of scripture, it has one of the greatest implications. You can read it with me. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus 
In other words, Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen, yet he took the time to grieve with his friends. While Jesus knew exactly what was coming, he took the time to mourn and to feel what everyone around was feeling. And John would say, I saw how he loved his friend. And in that same manner, Jesus loves you. (laughs) But his weeping didn't last for very long because he would say, open up the tomb. Martha would say, he's been in there four days, Jesus. You are four days late. By this time, he already stinks like a junior high boy's locker room. We are not going to open up that tomb, Jesus. It's going to be rank in there. But Jesus knew something that it's important for us to understand this morning. Jesus knew what was about to happen, and Jesus knew that it wasn't a grave. Rather, he was standing on the ground for God to get the glory. A grave is not the end. It's just ground for God to move. Listen. He said, open up the tomb, and they did it. He said, Lazarus. Why did he say Lazarus? One, because it was his friend, and if he would have just said, come forth, all them dead bones in the tomb would have got up and walked out on that day, and that would have been a scary Halloween mess happening right there. He said, Lazarus, come forth, and he didn't just come walking out. He was bound in grave clothes. He came hopping out. He said, somebody get this off me, and Jesus said, get the grave clothes off him. Why? Because the grave was not the end. The grave was the ground for For God to get the glory. Death is not the end. Death is just a door. Many believed, but some reported him to the Pharisees. And I think our question is this. If you saw that with your own eyes, how could you not believe? And Jesus answered the question. John answers it in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, many refused to believe because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They wanted to do what they wanted to do, and that's why they refused to believe in Jesus, not because they had a good reason. And as John writes this letter in retrospect, he would say, this was a sign pointing to what he was ultimately going to do. And I know that because of the way he worded his response. He didn't just say, I can resurrect him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And John would say, listen, my friends, resurrection is not just something Jesus does. Resurrection is who Jesus is. He is the resurrection and he is the life. And having penned these words, John would detail his journey all the way to this moment where we stand right now. And while it is customary in the average American home to read through Luke chapter 2 around Christmas time, many times we fail to remember what would have been happening around this time 2,000 some odd years ago. The disciples are hidden in a room. Why? Because he had been beaten. He had been bruised. He had been mocked. A crown of thorns was pushed on his head so that blood came out. A cat of nine tails ripped the skin from his body. He was unrecognizable as a man. They put a robe on him to mock him. Then they ripped it off to remove the scabbing that had taken place because of what they had done as a sign of mockery. They cast lots over his clothes. They hung him on a cross And they put him along the side 
side of the road where everyone could see his nakedness revealed. He took our beating and with it he beat our sin. He was mocked so that we could be loved. He was crowned with thorns so that we could one day be crowned with glory. And he was hung on a cross so that with that cross he could cross out our sin and shame for all eternity. He did it on purpose. <laughs> but he didn't stay dead. He went into the grave just like he said he would. But his body didn't lay there. He wasn't taking a nap. He descended down into the center of the earth where was Abraham's bosom and there was Hades. And he took the keys of death and hell. It wasn't really a fight. He began marching in there covered in his own blood. And Satan began to yell, somebody stop him. And the demon said, I don't know how. And he said, I'm going to take the keys. And with it, I will conquer death and I will conquer sin. And hey, all y'all are going to come with with me now. Oh, but the story didn't stop there. On this time, or several hours ago, rather, very early in the morning, Jesus was a morning person. I'm not, praise the Lord. He rose early in the morning. And listen, I'm not asking you to believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. I'm asking you to believe in him because hundreds of people saw him with their own eyes. They saw him physically with their eyes. In fact, the Bible details how the, the Pharisees who killed him, many of them followed him. How does that happen? Because they saw him. Let me ask you a question. If you took world history class, you remember a Roman emperor by the name of Nero? Anybody remember Nero? Most people know two things about Nero. Here, here's, here's one of them. He burned the city of Rome. Remember that? And he blamed it on who? Does anybody remember? He blamed it on the Christians. This is years after Jesus has been gone. How in the world is this fledgling group of teenagers now thousands strong? Because they saw him. Secular historians would agree. You will not find a single historian, Christian or atheist, who will disagree that there was a man by the name of Paul who journeyed all around multiple continents and through his teaching, he would shape the culture of Christianity for forever. How in the world could a man who was murdering Christians go to planting churches? Because one day he was riding along the road and he saw him. One of my favorites is a guy by the name of James. He writes a book to us in the Bible, and you can't find a historian who would disagree that there was a Christian pastor at the first church of Jerusalem by the name of James. James was the biological brother of Jesus, and yet over and over and over again in his letter about his brother and to his church, he calls him Lord. Let me ask you a question. What would your biological brother or sister have to do to convince you that they were your Lord and that you ought to worship them? Not happening for me. And I'm the oldest sibling. You better believe I've tried it. What made the difference? He predicted his own death. He predicted his own resurrection. And he actually pulled it off. And we're going to go with anything that that guy has to say. Anything that he has to say. Listen, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And through Jesus, and only through Jesus, you can go from feeling like there's no reason for this to feeling like I'm living a life of purpose. Through Jesus, you can go from feeling restless to daily resting in the peace that passes all understanding. How? Through Jesus. You can go from no real happiness because if God doesn't exist, what's even the point? 
If I don't get to spend eternity with God in heaven, what's even the point? I should just live whatever way I want to right now. Why? Because through Jesus, there is purpose and peace and joy and contentment, and it will only be found in him and through him. Pastor, I'm just confused why all this is happening right now. Listen, it may seem like you're in a tomb. It may seem like your life is over. It might seem like death is knocking at your door, but Jesus says that grave is not the end. Death is just a door. Rather, it is grounds for God to get the glory. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, friends, the answer is they don't really. The Bible says that there is only one that was good. We're all sinners. Whether you've sinned one time today, we deserve help. We're not good. Maybe some of us are nicer than others, but we're not, we're not good. But Jesus was good. And the ultimate bad thing happened to him three days and three nights ago. But it wasn't the end. He rose again so that you might have life in his name. And today, while life might feel a little bit like Lazarus, you have the opportunity to respond to the call of Jesus today. He is standing at the door of your tomb. He's standing at the door of your heart, and he's saying, hey, come out of that. And when you respond to his call and find new life in Jesus, the grave clothes of death, the things that bind you, the things that have held you back, the addictions and the struggles that control you, the things that have muzzled you, blinded you, and bound you, Jesus says, we're going to remove those because you have brand new life. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, no more grave clothes. Behold, all things are made. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the greater Cadiz, Kentucky, or Winchester, Tennessee areas, we'd love to have you join us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our amazing children's and students' opportunities, visit us at onechurchcadiz.com. That's onechurchcadiz.com.